Thank you for listening to Drinking with Authors. This podcast contains adult themes, adult language, adult subjects, including alcohol, sex, and solipsistic existential nihilism. Now we ask if you are drinking along with us to please drink and listen responsibly. Okay, welcome to Drinking with Authors. I'm your host, Erica Lance, and with me today is Valerie Willis. And our guest is John Hartman. Yay! Oh, wait. It's probably gauche to applaud myself. Ah, screw it. Yay, me. Yay. I think it should. I've constantly said we need to get an audience so that there's cheering. So it's not just us cheering for ourselves, but... You know, having done podcasts in front of an audience, it is never as good an idea as your fans think it will be. Because edits. Uh, Edits, that's true. Edits are a thing. Yes. And the the podcast that I'm most frequently on is a quote-unquote live play podcast called Authors and Dragons. And it is recorded live. But we cut out the bits where we can't find crap on our character sheets and we're trying to make Roll20 work or somebody gets dropped from Skype or whatever. So we've had Patreon patrons ask for the unexpurgated files. And we're like, no, really? Remember that time when you asked your parents for something and they said, I promise you really don't want it. And then you got it and you're like, oh, I really didn't want this. Just pretend I'm your dad, okay? It's it's really funny because I bet you say that. We, wait, okay. First, first, what are we drinking? We have to talk about what we're drinking so people can drink more. So I am drinking gin and tonic with pomegranate and lime like an Aristocrat. That's what I'm doing right oh, there. Or fancy. And I, I'm just I'm just rum and coconut now. <laughs> I feel like such a pansy. Right now I'm finishing up a Pepsi. But then I have Angry Orchard for later and for right. once I'm done with my soda. My other favorite is uh, Cider Boys for a, a cider. I haven't had that one. I'll have to give it a shot. Mm-hmm. Is it local to where you are or is it national? No, I think it's, it's a national. national. Okay. It's, just, it's a little harder to find. You don't find it at the grocery stores ever. So you usually have to go to a liquor store to find it. And during Thanksgiving, they come out with this cranberry apple that is fantastic. Ooh, I'd give that a shot. Around here, there's a local, um, <clears throat> there's a local orchard called Windy Hill that's about an hour from me, and they make a fantastic cider. Oh, so oh. that's my preferred fall drink. And there's a couple of restaurants near where one of my editors lives that has it on tap. So that's we. Awesome. We end up having a lot of meetings there for some reason. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally on board with this. This whole COVID thing has ruined my drinking life. <laughs> oh, God. You ain't yeah. even kidding. Because yeah. most of the time, I don't. I only really drink at conventions. It's been four months since I've been at a convention. I haven't gone without some form of business travel, either for writing or my old day job. Since I got out of college. Oh, oh no. And I'm old. <clears throat> so uh, we're talking 25 years. I a thousand percent understand. I'm having the same problem. I do cosplay at conventions too, along with all the other stuff. And me and my uh, friend of mine that we cosplay together were like, 
Okay, so we're working on our costumes. I'm like, this is so defeatist for me. I'm going to just walk around my living room dressed as Lestat. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, um, <laughs> I'm a big Magic the Gathering nerd in addition to writing stuff. And I haven't played live Magic face-to-face in four months. So I've been buying new cards and building decks. And I'm just like, I feel, I just feel like this is terrible <laughs> it, it, it is yeah. for us for us epic nerds that like to interact with people our favorite nerd bar here got closed down it was a place called waypoint six yeah. and it got closed down because they couldn't make it through the covid times and stuff like that which was really sad but okay wait a minute i don't want to talk about sad stuff we have you <laughs> we have you you're epic we're not talking about sad stuff fine we're in covid okay you are a writer i are <laughs> Yes, many know that. So, um, you know, going. Where did you start? I might have had a couple of shots before we started. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Struggling with the words. All but the like, words. You know, a lot of us were, you know, wrote as in childhood. Some of us didn't discover it until college years. Like we always like to hear where that love came from and the weird journey that got you to the books that make you who you are today. Well, it's definitely a weird journey. Um, It's a weird journey that involves um, poker, the Lithuanian mafia, and internet gaming. Okay, I'm totally on board with two parts of that. I want to understand the Lithuanian mafia. So So I uh, I wrote when I was young. I wrote all through high school. I wrote all through college. And then I transitioned into theater for my creative outlet for a long time. And I was a professional lighting designer. I was a director and a producer for a community theater here in Charlotte. I was managing director for a small black box theater. So that absorbed my whole life as far as creative output. And my day job was tied to that as well because I built theaters for a living. So... Long about 2000, I was, I was sitting at home. 2000. Yeah. I told you I was old. Um, so fall of 2000, I'm sitting in my parents' living room after Thanksgiving dinner, lunch. And because I grew up in the rural South, so we don't have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We have breakfast, dinner, and supper. Uh, So Thanksgiving dinner is the noon meal. Welcome to the rural South. Um, Well, you need a nap after that. So then you can do something else later. But anything you need to go see bees right after. (laughs) So we're sitting there and I'm sitting on the sofa and we don't like either the Cowboys or the Lions. So we're not watching football. And. The World Series of Poker comes on ESPN. And I see this kind of chubby dude from Tennessee with the most perfect gambling name ever. Chris Moneymaker. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yes. Swear to God. Given name. Wow. Chris Moneymaker enters a $40 online poker tournament. And wins a million dollars. Oh my goodness! At the, at the World Series of Poker main event. 
So I think to myself, well, if this fat redneck can do it, I can do it because I'm a fat redneck and I have a computer. And that was obviously all of his qualifications. I like it. I like it so. We won't get into any of the fact that he played poker for years and was an accountant, so had a solid math background. We'll ignore all of that because I certainly did. <laughs> so I started researching Texas Hold'em poker. And the way I learned about it in 2000 and 2001 is through reading poker blogs because blogs were still a thing. Actually, they were a very big thing. Yeah. So I, some of my favorite bloggers had a private weekly poker tournament on party poker. And the only way you could get the entry code password is if you had a poker blog. I was like, all right, well, it doesn't cost anything to set up a blog. So I set up a poker blog. <laughs> and I lost copious amounts of money. <laughs> I was gonna, what is the name of the poker blog you made, though? Uh, I, it was called Poker Stage because I was a theater guy. And it no longer exists, I assume. I don't know. I abandoned it a long time ago. Hell. Thinking, you know, we're going to see if we can find it. I mean, it's the internet, so I'm sure that crap is still out there somewhere. Yeah. But I haven't done anything on it in close to 15 years, I think. But whatever. So I started writing about learning to play poker, and I started telling stories, and I got back in the habit of writing. And then a couple of years later, the World Series of Poker comes along, and some friends of mine get jobs writing for various poker websites, doing tournament coverage. And I'm thinking, well, since I lose everything I play, I spend playing poker, if I could get a gig writing about poker, it can fund my terrible gambling. So I asked <laughs> them to hook me up. Over the next four years, I wrote something like 400 articles for various poker websites covering online and live poker tournaments. Wow. And I wrote five to 600,000 words of pseudo-journalistic poker coverage. Then I had a disagreement with my editor over a deadline. Huh? She thought I had one. I didn't think I had one. And when you have those disagreements, the editor always wins. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This was about 2007, 2008. Well, I said, I'll show her. I'll write the great American novel. I got two thirds of it done. I wrote a novel and I am indeed an American. The greatness of the book is certainly up to the reader, but it has been profitable at least, which is mo more than most American novels can claim. <clears throat> in 2009, I self-published it, and I waited for the money truck to back up because I'd been reading various blogs about self-publishing and these people talking about making tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars in a month. And I was like, oh, well, you know, you write a decent story, you put it up on Amazon, you make a million dollars. That's no. not exactly how it works. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> the first month that that book was on sale, I sold nine copies. Uh, that's better than some. Some put it up in no. Yeah, 
so over the course of the next year or so, I wrote more things and I published, self-published some more things. And then something happened. I published the first book in the Black Knight Chronicles series, which is a snarky urban fantasy series with nerdy vampire protagonists. I published I published the first couple in a gap <clears throat> in Jim Butcher's Dresden Files publication schedule. This wasn't planned. I didn't know this. I also didn't know that at the same time as I published the third book of the Black Knight Chronicles, I think it was Spectra Del Rey released the first three of Kevin Hearn's Iron Druid novels back to back to back, month, June, July, and August. So what happened was people would go to Jim Butcher's Amazon page looking for the new Dresden Files book. There wasn't one. Amazon would say, hey, people who bought this Dresden Files stuff also bought this Iron Druid stuff. And there were three Iron Druid books. Well, Amazon's also bots tend to display four or five books. Mm -hmm. I was number four. Oh, wow. <laughs> so because in 2009, 2010, there weren't very many people writing urban fantasy with humor and male protagonists. It was essentially me and Jim and Kevin. And Jim hadn't put out anything in a while. I made a shitload of money. And then I sold that series to Bellbridge Books out of Memphis. They agreed to republish the first three and publish three more. Subsequent to that, they bought another set of three, and we're going to finish the season at nine. And then as it's gone on, I added on the Bubba the Monster Hunter series because my contract with Bellbridge said they got right of first refusal on anything in that universe. Mm -hmm. So thus, the Bubba the Monster Hunter series is in a different universe and doesn't violate my contract. And I can write whatever I want when I wanted. And the contract said that they that I couldn't release a novel-length work within three months on either side of a Black Knight Chronicles release. So I wrote short stories and released them whenever I felt like it. Fine print is I important. En I enjoy your loopholeness. I yeah. enjoy it thoroughly. I you enjoy know, finding the loopholes myself. <laughs> um, I did talk to my editor and my publisher about all of these things. They're like, yeah, okay, that works. I'm like, all right, good. And then uh, in 2015, I, I watched an ad for NBC, NBC's series Constantine. Oh, yeah. Which was a spinoff of Hellblazer, which is one of my favorite comic books ever. And I thought to myself, well, that's going to suck because you can't say fuck on NBC. Mm -hmm. And John Constantine, without profanity, it's, you know, it's like a fish with a bicycle. What's the damn point? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I said, all right, well, what would... John Constantine looked like if I created that type of character, that kind of badass, foul-mouthed mage. Well, he looks like Quincy Harker. Yeah. And 
I launched the Quincy Harker Demon Hunter series at the end of 2015. Is that right? I guess it was at the end of 2014 or very beginning of 2015. Midway through 2015, I got laid off from my job and haven't looked back. Wow. So if you didn't consciously... So for the listening audience and my overdying curiosity... By the way, I actually played in the World Series of Poker. Really? What so, event? Yeah, I made it to round six. What year was that? I went out there with Jen because I had a local poker game... And what they decided to do with this local poker game, um, I was one of uh, the only females there, um, is they put a little bit aside every week and they kept points for who won the night. And so uh-huh. you'd get five, four, three, two, one. And they decided once we had enough money to pay for the entrance fee and do all this stuff, um, that person would go. And I was 100 points above all these guys. And they wouldn't release it. It wouldn't go, you're going <laughs> trying to beat me and it just kept getting worse for them. And they're like, I don't, I don't understand. I remember it was, it was one of the, after I went, I didn't play poker with them much anymore because I realized they just didn't take me seriously. But it was a very interesting experience. I have to say, because I got to the sixth round. I don't even know how many hours I played. It's so cold in those rooms and they move you tables. Like once there's fewer tables. So they moved me to this table and there's 10 people at the table and I was number seven. There were six guys this side of me that all had monster chip stacks, like huge, oh. all six of them. And so anybody, because it was me and then there were three other chairs, right? yeah. anybody who sat down, you couldn't bluff with these guys because one of the six would call you. Like they would right. call you because they just. and Because they had enough chips, they didn't care. Yes. Yeah. Twelve people got taken out to the side of me. Wow. I just couldn't get any cards like to save my life. And finally I got a pair of jacks and one guy, you know, went in cause they not like they were in cahoots, but they were, he got a queen on the river and I was like, yeah. oh, whatever. Yeah. But when I stood up to leave, they actually all stood up and said, you were actually really amazing. Like you were great. We That's just want you to know it was pretty neat. It was amazing. That's very cool. But there are a lot of really good people in the poker world. There are a lot of scum too, but I, I made some fantastic friends that are still dear friends of mine. Uh, some of the best friends I've ever had I made in that world. People that I would trust with my people. I'd trust with my banking information. Wow. That's, that's brazen. Did you ever go to the world series? Did you ever play in it? I didn't play, but I did go. Um, I went out a couple of times just to see, just to check it out. What I would do is I worked largely for PokerNews.com, and we would have people on the floor doing chip counts and watching the big stars play. And if one of the big stars got busted or sucked out on somebody and busted them, they would write it up on the live blog. And then every morning before I went to work, I'd get up and read the live blog and condense it into a recap feature article. Oh. So whenever people logged on to Poker News, my article was the daily recap of the event. And after the first year I worked for them, I ended up doing all the non-Hold'em events because they knew that I could play all of the games so I could write about all of the games and not all of our people 
played anything other than Hold'em or Omaha. So because I could play low ball or deuce to seven, triple draw, and I could play all those things, they um, they put me on all of those events. Well, that's very. I can't play those games. Omaha confuses the crap out of me. You guys are just speaking another language. I know. To me. And, <laughs> but, but what I was getting to I'm is, be so um, you did get the money truck to back up to you on your series, but you were still working. What were you? What was your day job? What were you being when you were growing up, so to speak? So, up until 2012, I was a lighting and rigging systems designer for theaters, TV studios, and churches. Anything that's on television takes a lot of light and it's got to be in the right place. Well, yeah. I'm the guy who put the plugs in the right place to be able to put the <laughs> lights in. <laughs> it's kind of a half-assed lighting designer, half-assed electrical engineer position. Um, I did that till 2012 and I had some success as a writer and I quit my job of 18 years to do that. And the first year that I was a quote-unquote professional writer, I did a lot of conventions. I did a lot of appearances. I did a lot of all of the being a writer things except the writing part. So you're being a kind of a big deal. Yeah, I was. I like it being a big deal. I was. I was being a professional writer except for the part where I didn't write and didn't publish anything. So a year later... I ran out of money for COBRA, and this was before the Affordable Care Act existed. So I couldn't get health insurance. My wife has a couple of pre-existing conditions. I'm fat, which counts as a pre-existing condition. So I couldn't get health insurance, so I had to go back and get another day job. And that went for about another, so that was 2013. So over the course of the next two years, I bounced between three different theater industry day jobs. And then finally, my employer caught on to the fact, my final employer caught on to the fact that I wasn't selling near enough for them to pay me what they were paying me. And they said, yeah, you need to not work here anymore. I said, okay, well, sorry, you figured it out. I mean, you're right. (laughs) I'm complete waste of your money, but I was hoping you would, that you wouldn't catch on for another couple of months. So then you obviously, no, I love that. You obviously had to learn that um, it's not just throwing out a novel and hoping it takes off and is like the biggest deal. You have to constantly feed that machine. Oh, yeah. What is your, how many books do you have out now? That's always a difficult question because I have released so many standalone ebook shorts and short story collections. I tend to tell people I've got about two dozen or about 25 um, because that's what I've got on the shelf over here is because a lot of them are collections. But like the first four years worth of Quincy Harker books, it was a novella every quarter. And then I bound them in a four novella collection at the end of the year. Well, I count that as one book. That makes sense. So, so about 25. And when it comes to, so you did self-publish and you do self-publish and you do traditional I, publishing, right? Well, in 2016, I started a press. So I now own a publishing company and I publish. Well, 
I publish the majority of my work through Falstaff Books, which is the press that I own. But I also do publish with Bellbridge Books still. And then I've got some stuff in anthologies with various presses all over the place. So when you decided to create a press or a, become a publisher, we, we started our publishing company this year. It's called Four Horsemen Publications. We feel we're bringing the t-shirts. Yes, that's the t-shirts. Bring the publishing apocalypse here. Um, Because as writers, we just got... Great year to start that, by the way. Oh, my goodness. We know. We know. Um, But we we got done with how it works both traditional and self. Like, because there are authors that can't end up in either one of those. They're just not like we see so many terrible covers or... You know, not edited pieces of great work, work but and great intentions, but you know they're they're not strong enough to compete or brave enough to even compete traditional side. And the same thing, not strong enough, not brave enough to be able to take the reins themselves. So we we basically set ourselves up to meet in the middle a little bit and try to access a whole realm of great storytellers that is being missed. Oh yeah. So what, um, do you publish more than just your work? Oh yeah, we have about 50 authors that we publish now. And since 2016, we've published over 200 titles. Congratulations. Very, yeah. very cool. What's it just, like publisher? It's insane. It's, um, <laughs> it is at times the most rewarding thing I've ever done. And at times, uh, I think that it's, I feel like it's similar to parenting 50 toddlers all at once, alone, yeah. except I'm not alone. I have people that work with me and help me herd the cats. And then a lot of times it's like a toddler parenting 50 toddlers because I'm just as bad as any of my writers. <laughs> so um, well, it is... It is not profitable. The company makes a very small profit each year, but it's not a good way to make a great big ton of money. Um, it's a passion job for sure. It I, is I, absolutely a passion thing. But I, since from doing the convention circuit for six or seven years, I had met so many fantastic writers and run into so many cases where either they had great books that just weren't getting picked up because the timing was wrong or the book was going to take just a little bit more polish than a press wanted to put into it. Or there was one thing missing that the editor wasn't seeing and they just weren't buying the book because they didn't see it. Or they had gotten in bed with a small press that was shitty and unscrupulous and wasn't paying them. Yeah, and these are my friends. So yeah. um, I've been really fortunate to, across the convention circuit, meet fantastic writers, some with strong back lists and some with strong front lists. And they've trusted me with their work. And my my visibility around the southeastern United States has gotten me writers that have never worked for presses this small before. A.J. Hartley's new YA novel, Impervious, we released that this year, and it's A.J.'s a New York Times bestseller. He's an award-winning author. He he co-writes with Tom DeLonge, 
who's the front man for Blink-182 and Angels and Airwaves. He's published by 47 North, which is one of the Amazon imprints. Right. But this book was a book of his heart, and it didn't fit New York. Yeah. Yeah. No, and that's we run. That's a lot of what we're we we're working too. on too. Is stuff that doesn't quite wedge into where they it traditional, and it's more like exploratory. Um, okay, we actually have to take a quick break. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. Yes. All right. Don't touch anything. Hey, thank you for listening to Drinking With Authors. We wanted to let you know that if you're an aspiring author out there and you'd like to be on our podcast, you can email us at drinkingwithauthors at gmail.com. Or if you guys have a question, comment, want to tell us some little tidbit of interesting news, you can always direct message us or comment on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We love that you're listening. We love that you're out there. And we look forward to hearing from you. So we're talking about publishing. Let's talk about writing. What is how? So how do you get your ideas? I know you're a gamer, yes. so that's probably plays right. into some of it. And, and of course, you have the the Bubba the, the the Paranormal Hunter series, and you were mentioning you were a redneck, so I imagine your your heritage comes into play sometimes. Oh so, yeah, I have told friends of mine who they are in the Bubba series. they didn't figure out who they were because i had a friend write me into a book and i'm reading it and i'm like this this girl's a real bitch and i looked at her i'm like wait a minute is this me because she based it on a dnd game i'm like is this me she's like yes and i'm like damn it (laughs) yeah it's a friend of skeeter is bubba's sidekick and he's a friend of mine from college but alvin my friend who i based skeeter on he doesn't read fantasy he doesn't read what i write so I just randomly tag him in promo posts about the books and about Skeeter. And then he starts and then he gets fan messages on Facebook because people <laughs> love the character. He's never read the character, which makes it even more hilarious. That is so awesome. Oh, my God. I need to do that. I need to write somebody into one of my books that doesn't know they're written into one of my books. But- so, I mean. Other than other than rampant drug abuse in college and alcoholism and the world, most of my ideas and premises come from a what-if question. For example, the Black Knight Chronicles came from I was watching True Blood. And in the first season of True Blood, there's an episode where Lafayette goes and he hooks up with this pudgy, doughy, gay vampire dude. And I'm just like, why aren't there more fat vampires? There (laughs) should be. There should be. Because we have more blood, and we're slow. So we're an easier catch. We're a target-rich environment. Plus, we're well-marbled. We're going to be tastier. And that's where the Black Knight Chronicles came from. I decided to start writing a book with a fat vampire character, and then I decided to spin it into the old comedic trope of the fat guy is the smart one, the tall, skinny guy is the dumb one, and it's a Laurel and Hardy and Abbott and Costello vibe in the series. 
Bubba came from meeting the author Larry Correa at DragonCon. I love DragonCon. I missed DragonCon this year. If you've ever met Larry, he is a giant of a human being. He's got to be like six foot seven and a solid three and a quarter, 350. He's a, the man displaces a lot of water. Wow. (laughs) Well, I met him the year before I had my book deal and the year before I had started writing Bubba. And he hands me this really hideously ugly lime green Monster Hunter International baseball cap. And we chat briefly, and I find out that he's a former firearms instructor, and now he writes these books about monster hunters. And I think, you know, if I was a monster hunter, he'd look a lot like you, except he'd have he'd be your size, but he'd have more tattoos, like any, because I don't think Larry has any. And he'd have a lot. He'd have long hair and a long beard. So basically, Bubba is a physical blend of Larry Correa and an old stagehand I used to do shows with named Dr. Nick. (laughs) It wasn't until about three years after I started releasing the Bubba stories that I learned that Larry has a character in his Monster Hunter International series named Bubba. And I was like, whatever, dude, you're from Utah. I got way more claim to the name Bubba than you do. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. So... Talk about comms. We were we talked to um, Jonathan Mayberry, who we have to bring a bottle of uh, uh, whiskey to when we go to Dragon Con again. Because well, he's going to get loaded because I owe him a really nice bottle of whiskey too. Okay, mine. Was <laughs> Jonathan not did me a solid a couple of years ago, and he's a great guy. He is. He, he is, is a great. fabulous guy. But we we're talking about the conventions and meeting people at the conventions and meeting fans. What are your fan experiences been like? They've been great. Now, <clears throat> let's understand that I'm a relatively small fish and I'm a relatively big human being. So I don't get the mobs of fans that somebody like a Jim Butcher or a Jonathan Mayberry or a Laurel K. Hamilton or Rachel Kane gets at a convention. I don't have that volume of fans. Uh, I have hopes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I ain't dead yet, so it can happen. Also, I'm 6'1", 320 pounds, and I look like I eat babies for breakfast. So <laughs> when people come up to me, they're not going to be creepers and psychos because I look like I can hurt people. I can't. I'm a giant wuss, but I look that. like an extra from Sons of Anarchy. Now, so. now they know. Now they know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm really kind of sweating how big your listenership is now because I'm like, shit, now they'll know. <laughs> but my fan interaction has been incredible. I have I have had people come up to me at cons and wear my shirts, and that's amazing. You know, it's for a small press and self-published author, it's super rare for somebody to show up with a printed copy of your book because we live and die by ebooks. Print books are such a small part of our distribution model that when somebody comes with one of our books, they worked to get it. They special ordered it or they bought it off our website. So when there's a book of mine that I haven't already autographed, it's like a red letter day. I'm like, you guys are so awesome. 
<laughs> so my fan interactions have been great. <clears throat> Probably the strangest one was getting fan mail from Whoopi Goldberg. Really? Really? Yeah, she uh, emailed me one day and said she was a fan of my books, the Quincy Harker series. And I emailed her back and asked her for proof of life because I thought it was a friend of mine pranking me. <laughs> Did she give you proof of life? Yeah, she shot a little video on her phone backstage at The View and sent it to me. And I, and I was like, holy shit, that's Whoopi fucking Goldberg. <laughs> and then I got her to blurb the, the series for me. So she's on the covers of the Quincy Harker series. Very cool. That is so cool. Did yeah. you have you ever had anybody dress as one of the characters for you? Have you had somebody cosplay? No, I haven't. Um, probably because with urban fantasy, most of my people dress like normal people. They might be dressing like Bubba or Jimmy from the Black Knight Chronicles or even Harker, but they're just wearing black t-shirts with band names or comic book stuff on them because <laughs> that's what my character my characters dress like I do. So that that makes, makes it sense. easy. We were we we talked to people and that's that's one of the things that we talked about is being like that one of the recognitions is when somebody cosplays you. Yeah when, as you or has anybody dressed as you? Yeah, because Justin and Jonathan McBerry have both had this experience. <laughs> Where somebody's dressed as them. Nobody's done it in this life. I did go to a costume party at a theater conference once with a friend of mine, and we just dressed as each other. Because oh, we're, we're built similarly. <laughs> so we just swapped name tags and traded jackets, and we dressed as each other. I've been mistaken for other writers. James Ray Tuck, uh, who writes the Deacon Chalk series... He and I are good friends and have done a lot of the same conventions together. And we've signed each other's books because people just think we're the same person. <laughs> I have more hair and James has more tattoos. That, well, do you have tattoos? I have about seven. James, ha James has a couple, but they start at the wrist and crawl all over him and end at the other wrist. And so, yeah, James is a professional tattoo artist and he did some of my ink. So yeah, he's got a lot. Well, what is, what is coming up for you? What are your net, what are the next things you're working on? I'm currently working on the seventh book in the Quincy Parker demon hunter series. And Hey, we'll give your listeners something that nobody's got yet. Um, I just landed on the title. Oh, titles are hard for me. I hate them, which no. is why most of my titles are song titles. But this one uh, is called Conspiracy Theory. Oh, and, and where was the inspiration? Um, it's just for the book or for the title? The title. It just kind of fits. The whole book is very, it's a very multi-layered plot, and there's a lot of stuff going on under the surface. And this is the this is the middle book in a three book arc for the Quincy Harker series, which also now will cross over with the Bubba series, because my fans have been asking for that for a few years. So I'm, and I've been saying, guys, they'll hate each other. Like we don't care. We want to see it. I was like, all right, fine. fine. You asked for it, Toyota. <laughs> I love that. Careful what you wish for. So when you're writing, are you a water pantser, plancer? What, how do you write? 
you know, it depends on the length of the work. If it's a short story, I generally have the catalyst idea and maybe a turning point, and then I know where I want to end. If it's a novel, I it depends. I I tend to outline in chunks. Right now in this Harker book, I'm a little past the midpoint, and I need to take a couple of days off and outline the next 10 chapters. But I kind of know where we're going. So, and I know where we have to end because it's a three book arc. So I know the big points that have to happen to get us to the next book for what has to happen in the next book. Sometimes if it's a first book in a series or an earlier book in the series, I outline vehemently. It just depends on, it varies from project to project. But do you ever, so you outline, so we were talking about this recently, right? So there's outlining and then there's going all the way down the rabbit hole to do these ridiculous synopsises that can no. be the size of a book. book. Yeah. And do we, Jeff Deaver does that. The guy who wrote the Lincoln rhyme thrillers. Oh, wow. His, his outlines are like 200 pages long. Oh my gosh. See, I Bas- can't. <laughs> yeah. Basically his writing process is he goes back in and adds in the dialogue. Oh wow! Oh really? Yeah, Christina Farley does the same thing. Like she'll she'll almost have like if it's a fifty thousand word novel, thirty five thousand of it was written in the outline stage. And I I, I don't know how the, I I like I have to have structure and outline, but it, it still has to be loose enough because my characters always throw a monkey wrench in there. I'm very character driven, and I'm like, what are you doing? And you're like, just wait for it. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of the fun for me is the discovery of what's going to happen. So, and I learned that about Deaver's process when he did a speech at a writing group that I was part of at the time. And I I was just blown away. He said it took him 11 months to write the outline and a month to finish the book. I was like, son, one you have the luxury to release one book a year and make good money. Good on you. I, yeah, no, no, no. I, I, so do you feel you're very character driven? Yeah, I do. Um, I think that I, I feel like it has to be the books I like to read are really character driven because there's gotta be a soul to it. Otherwise, especially in a series you can get by in a one-shot thriller with a really complicated interesting plot and lots of cool stuff happening but if people are going to come back they're not going to come back because you had an awesome gotcha at the end they're going to come back because they really like that character and they want to see what either what's going to happen to them or what they're going to do depending on the level of agency you built into your character and how they interact with the world. You feel like your character. So Val over here is characters. <laughs> My characters. Are characters the take her places. They they're they're places. like the, sort of the, the, the children you mentioned earlier, the kittens that go running out of the box everywhere and she's chasing them. Yeah, right. Do you feel like you chase your characters or? No. Um, I don't always know what's going to happen when I sit down to write. Just today, I was writing, I was finishing up a chapter, and I was like, oh, I didn't know we were going there. 
but that's just my lizard brain working. You know, that's the in the back of my mind, there's a processor going all the time figuring out the rest of the book. And it's not that the character is Quincy Harker doesn't grab hold of me and tell me to do things. <laughs> um, I'm a different flavor of insane, but <laughs> I'm not saying I'm not nuts. I'm saying I'm not that specific flavor of nut. Well, to be fair, to be fair, I've even had dreams where the character, like all of a sudden I'm on, I'm at a table and my character's sitting across me and they're like, we have to talk about what you recently wrote because it's incorrect. And I'm like, oh. Yeah, <laughs> like, you should change the prescriptions. You should work on the meds. She's entertaining uh, like this. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is like my science experiment happening here. But the so, other part of it is if it works, it works. Right. I no. mean, my process has certainly evolved over the 10 years I've been 11, 12 years I've been writing fiction at this point. When I started, I was just, the first book I write, I wrote was just an experiment to see if I could write a book. I had never written anything longer than a couple thousand words before. So I just wondered if I could. I got to 50,000 words and thought, I should figure out where this is going to end. <laughs> And then I outlined the next 10,000 words and wrote it. But, and you know, some of my stuff has been to the beat. This is what's going to happen. This is when it's going to happen. I've got rows of note cards laid out on the desk. All of that. Do you, uh, can, can I, you go ahead. You, you can ask, you're, you're drinking a lot. You're asking questions. <laughs> um, you mentioned that you wrote, uh, you write a combination of novels and between the novels, short stories and novellas, which is more difficult for you to write? Like for me, I like to go on for days. So anytime that I have to write a short story novella, I'm like, I got to close this. I got to close this fast. I can't, I can't linger on the details. I've got, I've got to. Yeah. So last year was a big novella, a big short story year for me. I hadn't done any anthology work for four, several years, and I got invited to be in like four last year. I didn't make the word count on any of them. I literally turned in every story and said, I know it's too long. Just tell me what to cut. So, yeah, I feel you. And Joshua Palmatier at Zombies Need Brains absolutely feels you, too, because he is the one who, he and Crystal Siracas had to cut me in the My Battery is Low and It's Getting Dark anthology. And we cut 20-plus percent out of that story. I was over 2,000 words heavy. Oh, wow. I was 3,000 words heavy in the story for Predators in Petticoats. Um. I, I was not I was not heavy in the story I wrote for Laurel K. Hamilton's anthology for Penguin. They were paying more than anybody else, so yeah. <laughs> you had to pay attention to that. Yeah. But I but I was I had a ninety five hundred word limit and I think I or no, I had a ten thousand word limit and I got in at ninety five hundred. Right. That that's usually me. I'm like, I got ten thousand. I'm at ten thousand. <laughs> no, but no, you're at I'm at twelve thousand. And I'm like, that is a short story. You need to cut it back. Yeah. 
here with flash fiction. It's kind of amazing. I, I'm, I'm the opposite of what you guys are doing. Like, I can go, how many words do I got? 5,000? Here's 5,000 words. There you go. Wrapped up with a bow. And I used to be like that. But as I've written more and more and read more and more, the descriptions get heavier. The plots get more complicated. Because I came at this from a journalism style of writing, which is very sparse, very tight. It's taken me years to fluff it out to where I can actually write an 85, 90,000 word novel. Where, where do you think your biggest strength as a writer is? I don't know. I stumped him. Everybody write this down in this moment. So, in, I stumped him. <laughs> So I'm a hack. I'm, uh, and I don't say that in a, in a very, in a disparaging way. I feel like I'm following in the grand traditions of William Shakespeare and Charles Dickens. I write for money. So I write for a commercial audience. And I, I think that that is one of my strengths is I write what people want to read. I'm fortunate in that the stuff I like to write also happens to resonate with people. But probably comedy and snark. Oh, no. If I have a if I have a real strength, it's dialogue. I like that. My strength is dialogue, too. Um, and that comes from theater. I've read a lot of Mamet, and I've read a lot of Shakespeare, and I've read a lot of Terrence McNally. I've read the best dialogue writers in history, and I steal from them. Well, as you should. Well, what mean, do you think your biggest weakness is, though? Description. description. He knew that one. He knew that one. Oh, yeah. Is, description. description, too much description or too Not little? Not near enough. I will write a scene that is awesome dialogue that takes place in a white room with no walls and no one will know what anything looks like. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've done that. Uh, uh, I've now added to like, I try to make like a, a list of things that I do in a revision stage that I know are my bad habits to flush it out. And one of them is going through and adding the description of the background and surroundings because I, I get so character focused that I, I just, I don't even bother with that part. Yeah, Deb Dixon, who's my editor, and she's the publisher of Bellbridge Books, she's done a great job of beating that into me over the last almost 10 years that we've worked together. She's like, paint the picture. Use all five senses. Tell me something. <laughs> all right, fine. You mean I can't just blow shit up? And then I blow up shit, but... Yeah, I was going to say, I hope you blow up shit. So let's talk about editing for a moment. This is one of my favorite topics, because I sure. think editing is one of the most highly overlooked things, especially for self-published yeah, authors. Yeah, self-published uh, new mistake is always bypassing an editor or thinking they don't need an editor, and I think it's <laughs> worse. Worse thought, like, out of all the things you go cheap on, that is not the thing you go cheap on. Um, I mean, put a damn black cover with white Times New Roman letters on it before you skimp on the editor. So you being that you've been successful, because it's different when you have somebody editing for you in the beginning 
Where do you feel like, you know, when you produce something, where, how does your editor fit into this for you? This is absolutely going to be a case of do as I say, not as I do. Um, and that's going to come from the fact that I'm now 10 years into writing three to 500,000 words of publishable fiction every year. So I'm a lot, and before that, I was writing 100,000 words a year for five years. So I'm a lot further along the curve than a lot of people are. I don't need a whole lot of developmental. I know how to tell a story. It's harder with a new project and with a new series. I need more help massaging that story and what those characters would do than I do with an established story. But what where the editor now fits in for me is at the copy edit stage. Um, my my first run of edits is are the sentences stupid? Am I being repetitious? How many times do I start a sentence with so or but? And and did I go back through and correct all of the places where in caps I wrote check name or check hair color or check eye color? Do you keep up, uh, you know, a lot of people will Bad buy. habit list. No, not just no. The, no. Oh. that's not what, what I was going to say. Oh, well, I'm just okay. yelling things. I'm shouting things. Bingo. <laughs> wow. Um, I was say, yeah, um, I was going to say, do you keep a sort of Bible or world book or whatever of all of these things like the hair colors and the this and the that's? One exists. Do <laughs> I have anything to do with making it happen? Hell no. So but I pay do, somebody to do that. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's yeah. cheating. It's a, uh, okay. No, that's outsourcing. That's outsourcing. <laughs> I was going to agree with him, <laughs> not you. Yeah. I've got like eight, eight, eight sketchbooks and three journals that I've put all my subject notes in randomly. So do you do, that brings up this problem here. She does a lot of research to the point where she can't stop herself. Like she needs to pull way back from going down the research superhighway. But do you do a lot of research for your books at all? No, I don't. Um, I do research as I as I need to know things. Like I spent a lot of my writing time today on the Glock.com website because I needed to know magazine capacity for a subcompact Glock 23. I needed to know magazine capacity for a Glock 17 standard frame. I needed to know how many magazines could fit in the ammo pouch that'll clip to the belt. But I write the story, and then as I get to something, I'm like, okay, how does that work? And then I just Google it, or I Google map it. Um, I don't do, I do practically no research ahead of time. <laughs> so besides the genres you currently write, are there any other, do you have any writing names? Like any you different genres under? Or any pen names? names? No, everything's under my name. It's John G. Hartness. Um, 
I had a conversation at one point about releasing my novel Amazing Grace under a pseudonym because it is stylistically very different from anything else I've ever done. But I finally just said, screw it. I've got fans. They'll read what I like. And if new people come to this book from if new people come to this book and they don't like my other stuff, fine. They don't have to. Um, But no, I've never released anything. I wrote some porn under a pseudonym, but that's all gone. And it wasn't under a pseudonym because I was ashamed of writing it. I was ashamed that I couldn't write it well. That's that, so you that couldn't write porn well. That's another thing. I'm I little... not. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> There's another podcast. Uh, my dad wrote a porno. If you have not started listening to that, oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that sounds brilliant. But no, everything's under my name, and I currently write in fantasy and urban fantasy. I'm working on a thriller which is a non-supernatural thriller. I have done one non-supernatural novella, and I've done a little horror. And a lot of urban fantasy straddles the line into horror. It just depends on how much, how many entrails you show. Very true, very true. Um, I mean, The Black Knight Chronicles gets classified as horror comedy, but I have I never thought that they were horror novels until somebody sent me an award for writing a horror novel. And I was like, fine, I'm a horror writer. Yay! <laughs> it says so right here on the little statue. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. That is hysterical. Okay. So we are nearing the end of the, the, the first podcast. So my question for you is what advice would you give um new authors new out authors there? I kept saying young authors before and I'm like, they don't no, all have to be young. Yeah. New, new authors. Well, one thing I would say is you don't have to be young. I run into a lot of new authors who are freaking out because they're, oh my God, I, I'm 30 and I haven't gotten a New York deal. I'm 32 and I don't have an agent. And my standing response is I'm 47 and I have neither a New York deal nor an agent, but I f- pay my mortgage. I feed my family off of this crap. Um, I published my first novel at 37. So did John Scalzi. He's doing a little better than me, but we're both doing just fine. And this was not a first career for either of us. Gail Z. Martin has, she published, she's published more books in the last three years than I have in my life. And she didn't publish until she was, I think, 40. Yeah, Faith, no, Faith Hunter didn't hit the New York Times bestseller list until her mid-40s. So... You're, it's not too late. And write what you want to write. Just write the story you want to write as well as you can write it. It'll find a home or a market. Yeah, maybe you self-publish it because maybe it's a niche market. Maybe you will make more money off of self-publishing your zany co-written horror novel about a group of people taking a tour bus through a psychotic haunted forest than you ever did in any of the presses it was ever published by. Jeff Strand. <laughs> I, like, I wait, feel like you just, wait, I read that book. <laughs> yeah, Haunted Forest Ride by Jeff Strand and Jim Moore. Um, they've made so much more money off that book self-publishing it than they ever did any of the times it was picked up by a press, 
And I think they might be the third or fourth publisher for it. So write what you want to write. You don't know. Stephanie Meyer didn't know that sparkly vampires were going to make her millions of dollars. You know, John Scalzi did not think he was going to win a Hugo Award for a novella parodying the guys who die on Star Trek episodes. <laughs> it's true. It's, it's very true. You never know when it's, where it's yeah. going to And if you're going to spend your time chasing the hot trend, just keep your day job because I don't want to do that work. I don't want to work on an assembly line for fiction. I want to write cool stories and do what I want to do. And it's managed to uh, manages to keep a roof over my head, so it can be done. That is awesome, Excellent. awesome, awesome. Okay, so we're going to wrap up this one. Um, yes. If you were to direct your fans to the best way to find you, don't give them your home <laughs> address, please. Um, other than, <laughs> we have an author who was like, "You can bring your dogs to my house." I'm like, "No, no, 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 we're not doing that." Aaron. Don't do that because I like cats, but um, I have a Facebook group that is John G. Hartness Books. That is the best way to interact with me on a regular basis. You can also check out my Facebook page, which is John G. Hartness Novelist. Um, I don't accept very many Facebook friend requests because I'm getting close to the cap and people are insane. So, <laughs> yeah. But my group is always open. Also, falstaffbooks.com. And you can buy autographed paperbacks of all of my stuff, both on falstaffbooks.com and on johnhartness.com. Perfect, perfect. You have been amazing and wonderful. Oh, thank, thank you for guys. the podcast with us. Thank you. So I've been Erica Lance. And I'm Valerie Willis. And this has been uh, Drinking with Authors with John Hartman. Oh, uh, that was Why is it no more rum and coke? No, all of the rum and coke. <laughs> all of the rum and coke. All, all of it. I are hard to think. <laughs> okay, we'll be seeing you next time. <laughs> <laughs>